Hi there, welcome to the meeting. I'm your host, Luba, and in this season, I'm talking to professionals across industries and functions on the impact of coronavirus on their day-to-day lives. In this episode, I'm having a conversation with Anna Kostikova. Anna is the Director of Analytics and Bioinformatics at Novartis, a pharmaceutical firm. Anna is extremely passionate about data science and machine learning, and you guys will hear it through our conversation. Anna is pretty much a pioneer in the field. She became a data scientist before it was so-called sexy. Anna has joined Booking.com and has built up the data science and analytics team there prior to going into a more traditional pharmaceutical space. Through this conversation with Anna, you will hear about COVID tests and how technology is shaping medical fields. You will hear more about machine learning and the new streams of uh, innovation in data science. You will also learn about leadership and what she learned Uh, being a leader, becoming a leader, and what advice she has for upcoming data scientists and technical professionals. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Thank you. And it's so great to see you. I know it's evening uh, right now where you are in Amsterdam. Uh, How are you doing today and how how are things in Europe generally? Uh, Well, thanks a lot, first of all, for the very warm introduction. And I'm really pleased to be here and speaking with you. I'm a big fan of your blog, and I really love women who try to do more in tech and trying to change the way we actually see our role and our, like, career life. So in Amsterdam, it's been pretty nice, I have to say. And we even have a saying right now that in Amsterdam, it's raining all the time, except when there is a quarantine. And this is uh, actually quite a true like about like the current setting. So it was amazing yeah. weather for last like, like month and a half. We've been having mostly sunny days with literally no rain. So it was really, really nice. That's amazing. So you guys are ripping the benefits of quarantine in terms of the weather. Exactly. Well, except for the fact that you're not supposed to be going out for, you know, too frequently and so on. But overall, it's been a really, really nice weather. Like since like I've been living in Amsterdam for the last five years and this is the first year I see such an amazing weather for such a long time. So that's awesome. I would love to, uh, you know, ask you a question on something that is very pressing in the world on everyone's mind. You spent uh a few years now in the pharmaceuticals industry, so you are much closer to, you know, what's going on in terms of uh, medical treatments, in terms of the medical industry than, for instance, I am. What are your thoughts on coronavirus in general? What is going on? Are we going to find a cure? Like, what, what are your predictions? Yes, yeah, so there are a couple of thoughts. First of all, the level of effort that is going on right now across the world in farming, biotech, in academia is just unbelievable like everybody is literally working on the one problem and Mm -hmm. uh, i have not seen anything like that before because everybody collaborates try to share the knowledge technology uh you know like even like simple things like you know if you need to share some uh, like uh, laboratory equipment or some of the samples and things like that that's never been the case you know because everybody currently is not competing to to market first, let's say, but rather trying to achieve the common goal because everyone is impacted. You know, there is like literally no business that's not been touched by this coronavirus. And therefore everyone is in the race, but to help each other and to get there quicker. So this is one like just incredible thing that is happening. And yeah, yeah, 
just not it, it's not at all about the competition right now but really about the collaboration helping each other figuring out you know how we can join forces do things faster because that's the main uh, problem here like the time is of essence yeah that's great to hear i definitely i'm seeing also that the world really came together and it's not just from the medical fields but in general helping those in need and mm -hmm. you know helping those that are particularly affected do you think we will find a cure and de deploy a vaccine within a year because i know in the us it takes about four years i think the last vaccine has taken four years to actually get approved and everyone here is talking about a year which is mm -hmm. much faster is that possible Yes, so it's a good question. So there are a couple of things that, you know, people need to know. So there are like two lines of efforts. The first line is really about developing a vaccine. And second mm -hmm. one is about like repurposing or discovering a drug that can help to people who have like a severe type of COVID-19 or coronavirus. Yeah. And the, the expectation is that for the treatment, it's going to come faster because obviously for those type of drugs you're actually reusing mm -hmm. some of the existing technology some of the existing medicine and you just try to test it whether it's going to help or not for the patients with the severe or very you know difficult cases yeah. of coronavirus for vaccines however it's a long process and um because it's it's not about even like discovering the vaccine itself it's about how we test vaccines in order to make sure that they are safe and then effective because this is mm -hmm. the first thing that we need to be really careful with we want to make sure that you know whoever is re receiving a vaccine is not going to have any bad side effects and if this vaccine is actually going to work at all so the yeah. process of normal let's say drug discovery is really really lengthy so it's um usually takes on average like 12 years mm -hmm. so the, the good news is that right now we have about like more than actually a hundred vaccine that's been developed and mm -hmm. it's it's really a lot so one of them for sure is probably going to work the question is mm -hmm. how we can leverage on the time and that's why uh, many governments now are trying to actually even without knowing whether vaccine is going to work they're trying to already start manufacturing and ramping up this manufacturing mm -hmm. process because if we wait until the vaccine is ready and then build the factories and, you know, prepare all this mm -hmm. manufacturing process, which is really, really it's gonna complex. It's going to be too late, so long time. That's going to actually wait even longer. And I know that yeah. many people are actually scared that, you know, how is it possible that vaccines are being produced without testing? But the key message here that nobody is going to use these vaccines before it's been tested thoroughly. And we're only I trying see. to save times, even though we know that it's probably like in most of the cases, it's going to be a wasted money because, you know, like setting up the manufacturing for vaccines mm -hmm. is an expensive business. So we're just trying to save the time. And that's why, uh, you know, in the UK, they're doing yeah. this in the United States and a few other mm -hmm. countries. So the expectations are that, you know, if by early next year we have vaccines, we are very lucky, I would say. So I would Got say it. we still will, will it, it still need a year of development, I would mm -hmm. say, on average, even with like all the fastest processes, because even regulatory or like organizations like FDA, yeah. for example, as soon as you submit something related to COVID-19, they processing it like in few days instantly yeah exactly like it's unbelievable yeah. i know how on average it takes like half a year to get your papers yeah. you know work process but this time around it's absolutely you know uh like very, super very fast cool. yeah super fast yeah. and 
And this is exactly this sign of collaboration, people trying to like move things as fast as they only can. And tell me a little more, how is machine learning and data science used in medicine, medical productions, in the medical field oh, yeah. in general? Yeah, so um, I think that machine learning and data science are now ramping up in the body of life science and pharma, and this is one of the reasons why I'm actually extremely excited of being part mm -hmm. of this uh, community of this industry, let's say, because we are now in the beginning of this process, and I'm really passionate in like building this like from the scratch, let's say, and being mm -hmm. there, not just like I, uh, I call it not watching from the side this way to way yeah. to come, but rather being like surfing this way, being the first one to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm one of the first ones to do that. So I'm really excited about this. And the applications are really like, you know, I would say they, they touch upon every part of the drug discovery and drug development business. So starting from like discovering mm -hmm. novel chemistries and, you know, new drug products, testing them and figuring out which one of them can actually benefit the human being and, you know, mm -hmm. to which diseases we can potentially use them, to then actually figuring out what kind of patients are going to respond better to specific treatments, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what type of the diseases are going to benefit the most from different chemicals. Uh, mm -hmm. Even like if you look first down the line, optimizing who you enroll into clinical trial. And if, if you look even further down the line, when you have like the product that is nearly ready to commercialize, then everything related to, let's say, how you're going to sell the drug, to whom, what is the price, not even like what is the pricing, yeah. but uh, how you even ensure the right supply of the drug. Everything mm -hmm. like related to this kind of supply yeah. chain and uh, monitoring of the you know, how much of actual sales you're going to have and st stuff like that. That's also touched by machine learning. And then there are more interesting applications of, let's say, to the computer vision and imaging, where you try to analyze, L like, large data sets of CT scans or immunohistochemistry slides and see whether you can detect disease earlier than what mm -hmm. you would expect mm -hmm. normally. Because uh, lots of time we're actually diagnosing the disease way late down the road too late so we really yeah. want to push it to as early as possible and very often when the disease manifests itself it's just too late to tackle it in you know really efficient manner so it's much better if we can detect it as early as possible so that's why i feel that machine learning could benefit enormously mm -hmm. uh, like in this field yeah, I totally agree with you. And, you know, just looking at regular healthcare, especially in the U.S., it's very reactive. It's not preventative at all. You know, if you're under a certain age, if you don't generally, um, if like you're none of the symptoms are visible, doctors are usually like, oh, you're fine. You know, only when something yeah. is really hurting, really wrong, you're yeah. like dying. Yeah, exactly. Then they would do something. And, you know, there's there has been at least I, I've heard that there is a lot of research done on how doctors uh, depending on their uh, mental state throughout the day response uh, to scans that they're reviewing, like if their attention span is already depleted but and they're tired, they might not notice something when they review these scans to uh, to see if, like, if the patient, let's say, has cancer. But with machine mm -hmm. learning, with computa computational imagery, uh, as you said, you can have just machines do that and be a lot, a lot more accurate. So I think that's really amazing. Exactly. In terms of... Uh, 
you know, application of the drug. And you mentioned that machine learning is used to figure out like who's the right person for this specific drug or what should the drug use? Like if you were to explain in very simple words, like how is machine learning actually doing that? Uh, do you think you, you, you can just like yeah. have a, a very like simple explanation? Yeah, exactly. So usually how we're trying to understand whether something is going to work or not, or who is like what we call the better responder to the drug, we're actually mm -hmm. analyzing different types of assessment that comes from the human body. And usually this, mm -hmm. this is um, what we call a molecular information. So information about our DNA or proteins that exist in our body. And by looking what is actually, you know, expressed what we call or not expressed or mm -hmm. in what quantities it consists in, like in certain parts of our body or what kind of mutations there are, we can try to use those types of what we call in machine learning word features to mm -hmm. try to predict whether someone is going to respond better or not. That but the important thing, exactly. So it's like you're trying to actually break down the whole human organism into multiple features. And mm -hmm. these features could be molecular information or clinical information or, or your medical history or information coming from the imaging or anything else, right? And then you try to scan those really 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 massive data sets in order to figure mm -hmm. out if you can see some interesting patterns that can tell you uh how the, the person is going to respond yeah. or not to the drug the problem is that you know unlike in like tech industry where you have like you really massive amount of data points data mm -hmm. yeah exactly you have like you know billions of visitors on the website and you you actually have like extremely rich data set in terms of what we call a uh, length so you have many mm -hmm. many samples in clinical settings we actually need to deal with very small data sets because usually if we're talking about a couple of thousands patients that's when we consider ourselves very lucky so that that's fascinating and you know that uh, touches upon one of the things that i wanted to talk to you about which is uh you know now you work in a traditional industry pharmaceuticals i think like uh, pharma machine learning data science is very new and only now there is some disruption coming to tracking clinical data uh, to being more uh, tech forward with how patients are being treated yes. and how with like the whole system works but prior to that you spent I think four or five years at booking.com building their data science team and that's like a traditional tech industry where you know as you said all website visitors are tracked you know all the information about who's using your products the features etc tell me about that difference between working in tech uh, as mm -hmm. like a data scientist, machine learning and a leader versus going to a traditional industry to try to apply these novel concepts? Yeah, that's a really great question. So there are a couple of differences. Like, and again, I'm going to highlight it from the point of view of data scientists. So from this perspective, mm -hmm. I believe that if you mm -hmm. look from, you know, let's say manufacturing or operational side of things, it's going to be something else. But let's For say sure. from the data science point of view, um, the technology stack is definitely different. You know, like when mm -hmm. I was, like during my time at Booking, we've been using all of the most modern uh, data warehousing technology, mm -hmm. data lakes such as Hadoop. We've been using streaming technologies to capture the data, to do like real-time prediction of the uh, visitor or partner behavior and so on. Whenever you're uh, like kind of moving towards more traditional industry, then you're experiencing a very, very old technology mm -hmm. stack that is more yeah. like, I would say, kind of coming from 70s, 80s, when a lot of these companies were first introducing the tech and like digital stuff into the kind of business as usual. And mm -hmm. therefore, 
uh, it's just a very different attitude to how you capture the data and how you keep the data. And this all leads to the fact that in tech companies, the data is considered to be a very, very valuable asset. So people understand why this is important to really keep the data set, you know, in a good conditions, mm -hmm. accessible yeah. to everyone in the company and so on. In the traditional industries, this is much harder. You know, people are not used to thinking about the data as an asset for the company. And therefore, even if you want to build something really smart with like data science or machine learning, you first yeah. need to persuade all of the stakeholders that they need to invest into the data, proper data capture and storage and so on. And this is not an easy task because when even when you start capturing the data, it's not immediately when you kind of start deriving the value. You need to wait until you accumulated enough of the information, right? Not, I'm not even mentioning the upfront cost of, you know, like starting yeah. this. This is like an expensive thing. Like when you want to jump from SAP, for example, in, you know, all of these kind of MySQL-based databases uh, to something that is more modern, you know? So it's mm -hmm. not an easy task for most of these companies. And... Um, so technology is definitely very different, let's say. And yeah, as I mentioned, the attitude to the data is different, but it's slowly changing. I think that they now start to appreciate a lot the fact that uh, how you can make your company more competitive is actually in making use of the data and trying to, what I call, you know, improve your profit margins by being mm -hmm. smarter, you know, just yeah. like... And this is something that they start, like, you know, really comprehending right now. So there is, like, it's slightly easier, let's say, to sell, but, uh, like, the data kind of mindset. But uh, still, it's really, really old school, I would say. Yeah. So very often, you know, when I was, let's say, after booking, I moved to Heineken, which is a beer brewing company, and we were frequently getting the data in form of Excel mm -hmm. spreadsheets, and that was our best bet, you know, like, there is, like, no data lake, so you're just receiving this data via email, you know, that's it, and uh, this kind of stuff is really interesting, you know, so there is low, like, harmonization, data standardization, data governance, these are the new concepts for the businesses, and they just, like, really unaware how to yet migra migrate that. Yeah. Um, but then if you look at more like, let's say, stakeholder management point of view and people management, then I would say there is like not so much difference, you know, like you really still need to be able to, you know, communi communicate very efficiently and effectively, you know, make sure that people who don't belong to the same knowledge domain like yourself can understand what you're saying, can, you know, relate to your explanation, you can help them to solve their problems, you know, instead of, mm -hmm. you know, just trying to be like super smart and say, you know, I have like this deep learning model here. Yeah? But really like figuring out how you can help the business to deliver value yeah. and, you know, really monetary value, let's say. But this is like super universal, I would say, across mm -hmm. all the industries I've been to. That makes sense. And what, what would you say can tech industry learn from traditional industry and vice versa? I mean, obviously, you, you, you touched upon the point that in traditional industry, there is a lot of old tech that needs to be updated, a lot of old school thinking of like, why do I even need to invest into all these modern technologies? And you have to go from the perspective of, hey, you, you can make more profits actually doing that. But mm -hmm. what about tech? Like, what can tech work from uh, learn from traditional? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest difference between, let's say, traditional versus tech is that a lot of traditional businesses, they are very physical. And what I call by that is that, you know, you need to manage factory. And it means that you have like this massive building, with, like liters of beer that you produce. 
or uh, you have like, you know, these drugs that you need again to manufacture, you need to, you know, transport and stuff like that. So a lot of these traditional businesses, they are very, very physical. And this means that you have a lot of relationship with different types of suppliers, uh, different types of like other small businesses that help you to, mm -hmm. to navigate this, you know, very, very complex supply chain, logistics and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I would say that a lot of them have very deep connections to this, like, uh these businesses that you know they're building their network upon and yeah. this is what makes them very very strong so this is one of the challenge i know let's say to back to the time when i was in booking booking has really strong relationship with the uh partners so the um mm -hmm. different businesses that provide accommodation and that's what makes this business very very strong it's not so it's like easy to build the platform but to build this mm -hmm. relationship with physical owners harder. and stuff like that, that takes time. So uh, in, when you look to like this kind of, you know, really uh, manufacturing companies or whatever it is, then you see that they exactly do that. They build very strong connection to the uh, businesses with whom they interact. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, having not worked that much in traditional industry, I've had a couple of internships as a chemical engineer since that's what I've studied in university. And, you know, just the business of, uh, managing a factory, managing suppliers, managing how you're going to put your product in a physical store. It's so much more heavy and so has such a higher overhead than a tech business where, you know, you build a website, you build a platform. Of course, there's exactly. lots of pieces that go into that. But I do think, like, I admire people that work in traditional industry, too, because there it's just so much more management and so much more logistics mm -hmm. and strategy. Exactly. And uh, that, like, futurist thinking and planning that goes into that, that tech can definitely learn like i'm just looking at you know startups and companies and they cannot like basically even make a plan for what they're going to do in a few months but if you w work in a traditional space you have to like know what you're going to produce five years ahead of exactly. time and i think that's so difficult you uh became a data scientist and a machine learning engineer as i say before it was cool you know you're you're pretty much like the industry is very very new and you're uh a pioneer in the industry, having built a team at Booking, now building a team, having like uh, put your expertise in Heineken and now at uh, Novartis. How did you know, you know, what interested you in it? And how did you feel that, oh, there is something in it, this is going to be big? Like, why did you decide to go into data science? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually, how it happened is that uh, if I just, you know, roll back, if like a decade ago, I was finishing my PhD, and I did my PhD in computational biology and bioinformatics, which is actually pretty heavy analytics field because you need mm -hmm. to know how to program, you need to be able to code, you need to know uh, statistics, you need to know like like different techniques, let's say. Mm -hmm. So, and then I was doing a short postdoc after, after that, uh, after finishing my PhD, I really wanted to try to go to the industry. And for various reasons, because uh, actually building the career in academia is really, really difficult. And uh, I just thought that I'm not going to bet my entire life into that. And I was, mm -hmm. yeah, so I just was like really interested to move back to industry. But the question was, you know, with what I'm, I know, who can I be in the industry mm -hmm. and, you know, what will I actually like doing? So I was just like, you know, browsing. And that was about the time when Glassdoor has just started. Literally, it was like mm. one of like maybe the first year when Glassdoor came to, let's say, Europe uh, and opened up the website, like with some of these countries, was looking through, because before it, there were no like 
you know, unique aggregator for jobs, like something was specific yeah. for one country, another one. And by the way, I was like finishing my um, PhD in Switzerland and I wanted to stay in Europe. I didn't want to move to the United States because I just wanted to keep the proximity to my family, which mm -hmm. lives in Russia. So, um, and yeah, and uh, like, I don't know how, but like just by chance, uh, one of the advertisements popped out and it was the advertisement for the data science role. And I never heard about this at that time. I just literally was like, what the hell is this? You know? <laughs> and I clicked on it and I read the description and the requirements and then the job functions of what you're actually going to be doing. And I just loved it because it was the quintessence of what I was doing during my PhD, but applied to the industrial application. So this is immediately clicked. And I started like researching like more about data science. And that was like, it was like 2013, I think. So just about a year mm -hmm. after, you know, this famous article in uh, Harvard Business Review came out about data science mm -hmm. being the sexiest job in the world. But they were like, at that time, there were like very few blogs, just one. It was, it was like, I think, towards data science or data science central, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then there were a couple of books on Amazon, and I literally ordered all of them. All of them. And like, I ordered, I think, seven or eight books, and I read nearly half of them or maybe most of it. Mm -hmm. And also, it was about the time when Kaggle, uh, if you heard of that Kaggle, like a platform mm -hmm. for data science competition, also, like, uh, went live. So I also decided to took part in this kind of competitions just to try it you know because i didn't know what you know what what it means in reality what kind of data is going to be and you know how much of the data is going to be because yeah. that was one of the big difference like moving let's say from academia with a lot of statistics and stuff like that but you still work with like pretty small data sets and then these uh, big data sets you know this all what they call like velocity, volume, and variety of the data, and blah, 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 all this triangle of the data science. And I just wanted to have a taste of what it really means and if I can actually do something with this data set. And I immediately realized that, you know, my computer laptop at that time was not really capable of, you know, <laughs> crunching it. So I was like keeping my laptop open overnight. So it just wow. finished the jobs and, you know, finished the computing, was taking part in some of the Kaggle competitions, even like became like, uh, like for some of them, top five. Uh, wow. Like, That's so I really impressive. liked it. But at that time, honestly, at that time, there were like really few participants. So maybe there is like <laughs> so, some bias in that. Don't undermine so, your accomplishments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I really liked that. And I really felt that, okay, it's exactly what I'm doing right now as a PhD student, but it just, you know, applied to a very different set of problems. And then I applied. So, and uh, like I applied, two positions because at that time they were like really just two positions in Europe of like with this specific wow. title data science and one of them was booking and I mm -hmm. went through like you know all these normal test style interviews was like very new experience uh, for me let's say and then I got in and then the interesting thing happened is that when I get in I've like the, my like first my kind of thought was that okay I know statistics very well so I'm going to be at ease with whatever I'm going to <laughs> see but no it was like completely different setup because first the technology stack was still totally different mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. were extremely like so great and amazing like my my team there was like i like i really love the data science team at booking it's one of the you know best teammates you can ever imagine uh, and i just realized that i have no clue like like i really was mm -hmm. like oh my god like they're so smart how i even like 
went there, you know, like, uh, so I definitely had the imposter syndrome for sure for like first year. Uh, and then I just was learning a lot, also learning a lot about this kind of mentality where you start thinking about the value that you're bringing to the business instead of being just like, you know, mm -hmm. very research focused, mm -hmm. you know, or oh, I just want to understand what the data are. No, you start thinking differently. You start thinking about the value that you can bring to the business, how you can explain to different stakeholders what you're doing and so on. So, so that was a really great and, um, and I never regretted. Honestly, I felt that it was like one of the best decisions in my life. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing the story. And I, I do agree that the mindset between academia and real industry is very different. You have to think about the business perspective as opposed to like, let me just sit in my corner and analyze and research all the data exactly. and what this means. Yeah. So that's a really great point. You know, data science field is so vast now. It's been, I don't know, like 10 years, I guess, since or so, don't quote me on that, since like data science became really a, such a hot thing. What are the, the, future, the future verticals in data science that you're seeing? You know, one that I, I know of, of mm -hmm. course, machine learning, artificial intelligence. Two-part question from me is, is machine learning a future? Is this something that all traditional industries should look to integrate? And then outside of machine learning, the buzzy word, um, what else is like very booming in data science right now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a great question as well, because I definitely see that uh, over the time, the data science as a field changed a lot. And yeah. uh, initially, when I just joined, there was just one title for everybody was a data scientist. Now what I mm -hmm. see is a lot more specialization happening. So essentially, you are having more and more people being extremely good in a specific subset of the data science. So now, if I were to classify, you have people who do more, let's say, visualization and what mm -hmm. we call data analytics. Then you have, well, let's say, generalist data scientists. So people who are good both in business intelligence, understanding how to translate, uh, mm -hmm. let's say, business problems into the data science solution. Then you have machine learning engineers. This is in you and really, like I would say, one of the let's say, top vacancies from the tech companies. Mm -hmm. So these are the people who actually not only know how to use machine learning or statistics, but they can actually build the machine learning that can go into production. And this, is, it, this means very different requirements for the code quality, for how you're thinking about like scalability of the model that you're developing and so on. So that's why machine learning engineers are extremely important for the tech companies where whenever you're building something, you really want to put mm -hmm. it into production and make sure that it can survive billions of views, right? Then another one is a yeah. data engineer, which is again, another specialization, I would say. Uh, these are the people who are more, let's say, software engineers, and they can build the backend of the data science. So they can, mm -hmm. they know how to do the real, uh, like uh, real time streaming, they know Java, Scala, these kind of technologies, and they know how to actually, um, transform the data that comes from website or whatever, the applications that you are running into this data lake, the massive data sets that then data science and machine learning engineers can work with. And then obviously there is also more specialized functions. So I know that now some data scientists, they say that, okay, I'm going to specialize from now only on computer vision, or I'm going to mm -hmm. be NLP, so natural language processing specialist. Mm -hmm. And then they, they have the extreme level of expertise, but just in this specific domain. So this yeah. is what I observe happening. So a lot more specialization than it used to be. The high demand for the kind of 
engineering and data science skills together. And I would say that if you look for the data engineers, it's currently probably like the hardest to fill vacancy right now. It's like really difficult to find people who know that. Data engineers. Yeah, data engineers seem like seems like a much more routine and dry field to me because a lot of the times you're kind of like a maintainer and a fixer, you know, you create like data pipelines mm -hmm. and stuff. You're like, you need to have a certain personality to enjoy that kind of work because it's not necessarily, you know, the sexy machine learning algorithm or like uh, looking into business data and figuring out, uh, like doing analysis on it and figuring out patterns. Of course, I have a rudimental uh, idea of what a data engineer actually does day to day, but that's kind of my impression that, you know, I'm just seeing that here in Silicon Valley, data engineer has been a hard uh, position to fill as well. And that's yeah. just my hypothesis as to why. Um, <laughs> I know there I just think that, yeah, it's like really difficult indeed. Yeah, in Europe, it was the same. We've been uh, like trying to hire for, uh, it, it, it's indeed like the hardest one to fill in. Yeah, I also want to talk to you about uh, um, about a topic of you being a leader and a woman leader. Uh, I was wondering, you know, has the fact that you are a woman ever hindered you from any opportunities? Like, mm -hmm. has that ever been an obstacle? And how big is that topic in Europe? This is like, okay, I, I will not try. I'll just love this question because I'm really passionate about like helping other women to build their career and just to explore themselves and, you know, just not not trying, not being shy from like stepping up and, you know, uh, realizing their dreams. So what I can say is that um, throughout my career, I was extremely lucky. So whoever, like, I have to say that the tech career is predominantly male world, you mm -hmm. know, so it's like you have fewer, like much fewer women working in tech than in many other industries, which is the case for data science. Yeah. But I was really, really lucky because all of the uh, male colleagues with whom I've been working, and actually it doesn't matter, male or female, they were so, so supportive, so helpful. Mm -hmm. And if I just, again, uh, think about my time back at Booking, they were the ones encouraging me and, you know, uh, fueling me with the courage to, to do more, to become, mm -hmm. you know, to speaking up, you know, to being more upfront, to, you know, not shying from expressing my opinions and so on. Yeah. And they were really, like, let's say, supporting me and trying to help me to become a person who is, like, can do that. So that's uh, definitely, and likewise in many other companies, I'm extremely grateful to really many of my colleagues um, who've been, like, super supportive, never been, like, trying to, push back or you know just say okay you probably don't shouldn't speak up yeah. and i would say that in europe the problem of this kind of you know attitude is probably less severe than i what i've heard let's say about silicon valley from my colleagues who are working over there where i felt that probably there it's harder maybe i, I don't know why but in europe it was mm -hmm. pretty good so so far However, I still feel that, you know, women in general are extremely underrepresented in tech. And uh, I think this bias is really needs to be fixed soon. <laughs> so because I think that the, the, the field would benefit so much from having more diversity. And it doesn't matter if I'm talking about women or, you know, just general diversity, because I yeah. believe that with different opinions comes the more creativity, more inspiration for everybody, you know, in just in general. So I would say to me, uh, all the people with whom I worked were really, really great, let's say. So um, never had 
actual troubles. But what is definitely, what, what I noticed is when things like became difficult is uh, once I became a mom, because mm -hmm. then you definitely realize how much different are expectations between women and uh, a man. Let's say in terms of, you know, just how much caregiving you give to your child or who is actually going to take the maternity leave more, yeah. who is going to right. be like picking up kids from the daycare, stuff like that, you know, it all comes with the details. But I definitely saw that whenever my male colleagues became that, that so parents, mm -hmm. they, yeah. for them, it was just a little bit of deep, you know, a little bit of change, yeah. but then kind of continuing as normal. For all of my female colleagues, whenever like it was just you know it was a huge change because yeah. you are out from your normal work for at least a year, even if you come back after three months, you know, which is like yeah. what let's say in most of European countries that's the rule. You kind of there for maternity leave for about sixteen weeks, but then you come back. Usually you come back not full time, and like juggling this is really hard. And uh, one of the most like let's say revealing articles to me was this uh, the article that compared the salaries um, for mm -hmm. the male and female before they were having kids and after mm -hmm. they they had you know uh, kids yeah, yeah i agree on the on the topic of diversity i agree with you that it it's generally good for businesses overall to have diverse pers perspectives on making better products and on the point with equality and with how uh, like women's salaries, I think this issue with like who's taking more responsibilities, who's out of the workforce more, that's definitely something that I'm seeing a push for, you know, more sharing responsibilities and like less of, oh, you're, you know, you're about to have kids, so I'm not going to hire you. That's happening less and less, I hope, at least here. I hope it happens less in the traditional industries. And that's definitely some, a big topic that needs to still have a lot of uh, progress mm -hmm. made to it. But, you know, I think that women like yourself, a leader in such a big industry, someone who's taking care of children are uh, like role models that we need to have so that more, more women and more, you know, other people with diverse perspectives can say that, hey, if she does it, I can do it too. Uh, so it's great that you're, you're also speaking up on this topic. As a, as a leader, for people who are new to leadership roles, what advice do you have to them? Maybe like top two things that you have learned after being in a, uh, in a leadership role for a few years. So first of all, I'm a very young leader, let's say, so I'm learning every single day, <laughs> let's say, and I think it's a journey. So it's not like uh, at some point you become like, like completely ready or you yeah. are just know everything, yeah. you know, it's just, it's a learning process. So for me, what I definitely notice in myself, what changed to, if I compare myself to, let's say, uh, 10 years ago is... Uh, that I care a lot more about what I call emotional intelligence and mm -hmm. empathy for others. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you kind of learn to appreciate only like down the road, let's say, not immediately. Because initially I was so much focused on, you know, just knowing what you do, like being extremely rational, you know, uh, knowing a lot about like technical things. But then I realized that at the end of the day, the business is not only about technology, but it's mostly about people. And therefore, the most important thing you need to care about is whether you understand what other people's feelings are and how they, what, what they value or how they, you know, what is their perceptions of themselves and so on. So yeah. that's what I'm really trying to like dedicate as much attention as I can. So the, what I call emotional intelligence and em empathy 
And this is the part of, uh, like, I'm reading, of course, a lot of books about this and articles, like how to be a better, let's say, team lead and how to help people to achieve their dreams and help them to grow. And one of the concepts that I really like is what I call servant leadership, is when you're not trying to tell people what you want them to do, but rather you listen to your team and then you become a voice of your team and then you kind of translate what this like the team that you work with actually want to say because i believe that when you have this kind of very strong empowered teams to speak up then the decision that this team can make is way better than any decision i can come up with and the only thing i can do is to help them to voice this out and help them to remove the obstacles to realize this so that's what i'm trying to to kind of grow into but it's a process as i said yeah Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you learned something new. I hope you feel inspired about taking up data science potentially, learning something new. I haven't learned into a machine learning course myself, and I'm very excited to learn more about the space and to apply my technical knowledge and thinking into something that I haven't been exposed to much before. If you guys are enjoying this series, please consider supporting me and subscribing to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Please share it with your friends and family. And I hope you guys have a wonderful, wonderful day as always. And I want to give a shout out to Studio Pod, a podcasting studio here in San Francisco, here in Silicon Valley. Thank you for distributing this episode. Bye for now.